This is Jamda on the go. Your review of the content featured in Jamda, the research-focused monthly journal of Amda, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Statements made by guests on the podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the position of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now here's our host of Jamda on the Go, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Welcome to Jamda on the Go for October 2022. I'm Dr. Carl Steinberg, your host for this podcast. Once again, I'll be speaking with Jamda co-editor-in-chief, Dr. Philip Sloan, and associate editor, Dr. Mallory Brown. Dr. Sloan and Brown are both faculty at UNC Chapel Hill in family medicine and geriatrics. Welcome, Dr. Sloan and Brown. Thank you, Carl. Thanks, Carl. So today we're going to be discussing four articles and an editorial from the October 2022 issue of JAMDA, the Journal of the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Our topics are wide-ranging and will include the impact of upgraded lighting on falls, the current state of medical care in the home for older persons, an update on Clostridioides difficile infection, and a feasibility study of fitting nursing home residents with a wearable continuous temperature monitor. So our first paper addresses the impact of upgrading lighting in nursing homes on resident falls. Dr. Brown, please tell us about this fascinating study. Sure. I think I can speak for all of us. No one wants that call from the nursing home saying, Ms. Herman had a fall. She's complaining of pain in her hip. What do you want me to do? Hmm. Falls are a big deal for our residents, and they lead to major health and economic implications. Poor lighting certainly can contribute to this fall risk. So lighting impacts, we know, visual acuity, alertness, and not to mention sleep. This really interesting observational study took a closer look at upgrading lighting in long-term care homes. They compared two pairs of homes, installing solid-state lighting upgrades in one and using the other as a control, so in two sets of homes. The solid-state lighting changed the intensity and spectrum to increase short wavelength, which I needed the reminder is blue light, exposure during the day from 6 a.m. until 6 p.m. and to decrease that short wave wavelength light overnight. Control sites kept their standard lighting without changing in the intensity of spectrum all day long. So over the next 24 months, the number of falls were aggregated from the records from these four different facilities. Before the lighting upgrade, the rate of falls was similar between the experimental and control sites with about 6.9 falls at each um, per 1,000 resident days. Following the upgrade, falls were reduced by 43% at experimental sites compared with control sites. So 4.82 versus 8.44 falls per 1,000 resident days. This is the type of study I absolutely love. It's an easy enough intervention that seems to have made a pretty major difference. So I, for one, am sold. <laughs> yeah, so um, I'm wondering if anyone has a little more for our listeners on how they might be able to implement this type of intervention in their nursing homes or, or uh, other uh, congregate living facilities uh, or any other insight? Well, Carl, you know, I have to say, you know, I and my research group have done a lot of work on lighting in long-term care settings. And 
There's no doubt that lighting has a role in many things, including falls prevention. I just have to tell you, I'm skeptical about this paper, you know, even though <laughs> I um, agreed to have it published in the journal. Now, these differences are just too great to be believable based on the lighting alone. You know, half, you know, if you look at the data, half of the differential change in fall rates was due to a one-third decrease in the experimental group. The other half to about a one-third um, increase in the control group. Um, so the increase in the control group can't be explained by lighting. So if that can't be explained, you know, what else is going on? Well, fall reporting is subjective. You know, we have you know, any study like this is going to have a Hawthorne effect. And when you're asking about falls, people get sensitized. You kind of know what's going on. If the lighting was only increased during the day, what about nighttime falls? So you know, I, I look back and say, why didn't I scrutinize this paper a little more carefully? You know, I, I admittedly, I was on the fence. And I was swayed by the fact that Arthur was from Harvard. You know, it was a, a you know, these kinds of studies are hard to do. But um, I will want to see more documentation of something about lighting and what it is about lighting and when to apply and what and how great the um, effect can be. You know, we've got another study we're doing this had a one third decrease in falls, but we had a different type of lighting. So something is going on. Um, um, there's just there's so much to talk about. You know, uh, the blue light is well known to um, help circadian rhythms, and certainly, and if you can't see what you're doing, and as we know, you know, a third as much light enters the retina in older people as it does in younger people. I'm just a little um, uncertain about these magnitude of effects. Mm, yeah. I still remain hopeful. Yeah, yeah, me too. I, I mean, and and uh, it's, so it's not something real crazy, expensive, or anything like that. As far as actually implementing something like this, I, it's, I guess it's two different sets of lights, right? We asked their costs. You know, their costs are about thirteen hundred dollars per resident. Hmm. Okay. And in one of our studies, we put in a lot of blue light. We, we put in a higher intensity light than they did, and the place got hot. And you know, in the springtime, and you know the. Hmm. And uh, the electricity had to be rewired. You know, there, there's some stuff to it. But I think the point is very well taken that many facilities don't like the public areas, don't have good um, ways of kind of lighting at night to get to the bathroom, don't have, you know, uh, other things that um, may enhance just the ability of individuals to see where they're going. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm thinking so you, you're a 99 bed building, you know, it's going to be $120,000 or, or whatever it is. And then uh, um, that seems like a fairly high line item on your budget. But on the other hand, if you prevent one lawsuit related to a fall with a hip fracture or a subdural, I mean, it's well, it's paid for itself already several times over, perhaps. Mm -hmm. so, anyway, well, great, great discussion. Thank you. Uh, so now let's move on to home care, particularly medical care in home settings. October's Jam that includes a sobering article about the state of home care reimbursements. Dr. Sloan, I'm going to ask you to tell us about the article and the editorial you co-wrote with Paul Eliezer, Steve Phillips, and Dr. Francis Batchelor from Australia's National Research Institute. So our listeners are no doubt aware that over the last few years, ideas like hospital at home and sniff at home have started to gain traction. And we've certainly seen far fewer patients come into post-acute facilities for rehab or skilled nursing services since the pandemic 
And that trend was already in motion before COVID sort of kicked it into high gear. Uh, but obviously not everyone can be cared for at home. Uh, so what are the take home points from this article and from your editorial, Phil? Well, Carl, you know, as background, um, most we know that most older people prefer home-based long-term care. Yeah. And by that, I mean, you know, four general types of services, personal care, nursing care, rehabilitative professionals, and medical care. Of these four types of services, all have grown markedly in recent decades, except home you know, medical services. An article in October's JAMDA demonstrates how little Medicare, medical care had grown. It's an analysis of all fee-for-service Medicare visits from 2011 through 2017, a total of over 20 million visits. Overall, home-based medical care visits are not very common. In 2012, provider utilization and payment data identified that across the entire U.S., fewer than 2 million home-based medical care visits were billed to Medicare, many of which, as we will see, were not really to, parents, to patients in their homes. And that only 652 providers made 53% of those visits. So wow. we have a small cadre of folks who are doing a lot of these visits. When they did their longitudinal analysis over seven years, they found a 41% increase in home visits, but over two thirds of visits were not to private homes. They were billed as home visits, but they were to assisted living or similar domiciliary care settings. Growth of visits in those settings was 74% during that time period, whereas visits to private residences were relatively stagnant at 4.5 growths, which is less than 1% per year. So the reviewers both thought this was really worth talking about, and we put the, together an editorial that accompanied the article, and we tried to drill down on the issue. The question we asked was whether it was possible for home-based medical care for older persons who are frail and disabled to be cost-effective. Our conclusion was that this is probably not the case in the volume-based fee-for-service payment model that continues to, to predominate in the U.S. healthcare system. Right. However, there are quite a few examples of systems in which home medical care visits are effective and cost-effective. These include, as you mentioned, Carl, hospital home models, which are present in a number of countries, including Australia. Uh, the Veterans Administration Home-Based Primary Care Program, terrific program in which over 300 provider teams serve nearly 60,000 veterans. Satisfaction is high, costs are reported to be reduced. And um, to some extent, the program of all-inclusive care in the elderly, which is not known for home-based medical care, but reconfigured its care model more in that direction as their day centers temporarily closed during the early months of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, and as you mentioned, Carl, probably other things have been happening as well but we're always dragged down by the, the fee-for-service model. The irony, of course, is that there's much to remit to, excuse me. The irony, of course, is that there is much to recommend home-based medical care. It is more personal and patient-centered. It supports aging in place. Families feel safer and less isolated with improved peace of mind. Rapport between providers and patients and families is better. And acute care can seamlessly progress to aftercare. And perhaps most importantly, all the incredible growth in other parts of home-based and long-term care, nursing, rehabilitation, and personal care, are like a ship without a rudder if medical services are not concomitantly and readily available. Right. Therefore, we feel that given the recent sensitization of policymakers to care of frail older persons as an issue in particular need of attention, 
now is an opportune time to actively explore and promote expansion of home medical care as a needed com- complement to the care that's more routinely delivered in home-based settings. Now, recent changes in the Medicare rate schedule are a step in the right direction. But what more is needed and what and can it happen? You know, what do you think? I'm a bit skeptical. Well, I have observed a lot more interest in physician and advanced practice practitioner home visits these last few years. Uh, and the data from this study ended five years ago. So, you know, I think a lot has happened since then. And in fact, I do some home visits for Scripps in San Diego County. And there are many reimbursement schemes that favor it, even though it's super inefficient under the fee-for-service paradigm, you know, driving from one person's house on one side of town to somebody else's house, uh, that sort of thing. But some of the ACOs and the Medicare Advantage programs uh, or others, uh, other schemes where uh, the, the uh, group or, or the entity is at risk for the cost of hospitalization have started to utilize home visits in sort of a hot-spotting triage plan, like looking at the top 1% utilizers, that sort of thing. And we see telemedicine used for this too, uh, as the VA has done that you mentioned, and Kaiser, I think, is starting to do some of that. So I actually see a lot more of this in our future as we move more towards so-called value-based care and and away from the traditional fee-for-service paradigm. But uh, we'll see. Uh, You know, none of us should be holding our breath. But it sure would be great to have that facilitated more. Yeah, yeah, it, it really makes a lot of sense. And I, I do think telemedicine will uh, facilitate some of that. Uh. And now, a word from our sponsor. Join AMDA in Tampa, Florida, March 9th through the 12th at PALTC 23 AMDA's Annual Conference. Register and book your room within AMDA's room block by November 30th and you'll receive the PALTC 23 conference recording package for free. Visit PALTC.org for more details. And now back to our podcast. All right, our next paper is a review about Clostridioides difficile infections. And just for anyone who didn't get the memo from IDSA or whoever proclaims these things, we no longer call it Clostridium difficile, uh, it's, it's Clostridioides. So. Uh, uh, anyway, Mallory, what did we learn from this piece on C. diff? I'm going to stick with C. diff, Carl, just so that I don't <laughs> mix that up. Um, right. So, it's certainly another message uh, beyond falls that I don't like to get in my inbox is a positive C. diff lab result. And I think I probably share that with everyone. Yeah. Um, so, this retrospective study set out to estimate the mortality, cost, and healthcare resource utilization for folks over the age of 65 who had uh, first a primary C. diff infection or um, a recurrence of this infection. So, using 100% Medicare fee for service claims data for the period from 2009 to 2017, primary and recurrent CDI or clostridium dif- clostridi. Let me start that again. Using 100% Medicare fee for service claims data from 2009 to 2017, primary and recurrent C. diff episodes were identified. Demographic and clinical characteristics, mortality, healthcare resource utilization, and costs in a matter of per patient per month were summarized for 12 months before and up to 12 months after the episode started. Regression models were estimated for hospitalization risk, hospital length of stay, and cost to adjust for comorbidities. C. diff infections associated deaths were 
almost 10 times higher after recurrent C. diff infections, 25% than for primary C. diff infections, 2.7% in that case. Compared with survivors, descendants were older, had higher Charleston comorbidity index scores, which I was I had to look up and it's a risk calculator for 10 year mortality, just in case you weren't up to date with that. And we're most likely black. Perhaps unsurprisingly, adjusting for comorbidities during follow up, descendants had higher hospitalization rates and recurrent C. diff infection descendants had more intensive care unit use compared with survivors. Descendants also had a longer length of stay and higher total cost. So the outcomes here are not terribly surprising. C. diff infection is an important contributing diagnosis to all-cause mortality, particularly for recurrences. Prior to death, older Medicare beneficiaries who experienced C. diff infections received longer, more intensive, and more costly care when compared with survivors. Clinicians should be particularly attentive to prevention, identification, and appropriate treatment of C. diff infections in our older adults. Better treatments to reduce primary C. diff infections and recurrence in this vulnerable population can really lower both mortality and the economic burden that it puts on individuals. Yeah. Wow. That that 10 times uh, Mm -hmm. the mortality for recurrence is really something. So. Uh, one thing about this, again, because the data from this paper end in 2017, is that we are treating C. diff a little differently now, right, with metronidazole no longer being considered uh, appropriate first-line therapy, you know, going straight to vancomycin or, or fidaxomycin. And also uh, fecal transplantation, thank you, Europe, uh, now more readily available for severe or recurrent cases. And also, in, if memory serves, I think in these years uh, that the study uh, – uh, was considered from 2009 to 2017, it was more common for clinicians to do a test of cure, which of course we no longer do. Uh, but yeah, I agree it's not a surprise that people with recurrent significant C. diff colitis do worse than single first-time illness. Uh, and of course, it's hard to attribute causation since it's likely that sicker people to begin with who probably have depressed immune function and are more likely to be given a variety of antibiotics would, of course, be more likely to also get recurrent and severe C. diff cases. But uh, Phil Mallory, a little off topic, but perhaps relevant to primary and secondary C. diff prevention. What do you think about the role of probiotics and the evidence for that? If you can encapsulate that into a quick reply or anything else uh, on this topic. I'll just say anecdotally, I've had a number of patients that have really had great benefit. I'm not sure that the literature supports it. And every time I try to start a probiotic in the hospital, my pharmacist stops it abruptly. So that's what I know. Uh, I'm kind of in your boat. Well, Phil, what about you? Well, first of all, you know, my take home message more than anything else from this study is that the first time somebody gets C. diff, it's your best shot of keeping it out. And so, right. It kind of ju- it has justified the insane uh, high cost of fidaxomycin um, as a first line drug. But in terms of um, probiotics, you know, the it's really hard to find, you know, through, with um, you know um, systematic reviews anything you know very strong about probiotics. You know, our hospital doesn't like to use probiotics because somewhere in the past somebody with a very very immunocompromised state 
got a secondary infection from them. Hmm. And um, I just don't think of that as a reason not to use them. I kind of believe in them, you know. I mean, you know, you know, you know, if you take antibiotics and you eat yogurt, you know, it's 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 going to reduce things like you know um, diarrhea, you know, and, and maybe vaginal candidiasis in women. I just I'm 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 kind of a fan of it, but it's one of those things that are more based on feeling than on uh, science. Yeah, it sounds like all three of us are on the same page on that, and. Uh... Yeah, I mean the microbiome is a strange and mysterious uh, place, and uh, and anyway, uh, I I look forward to better research on that. But in the meantime, I I haven't seen any serious infections associated with them, and I feel like uh, uh, you know we're not doing any harm. So, but someone correct me if I'm wrong, please. So, all right, our last article is about the brave new world of electronic monitoring. Specifically, this one is about having nursing home residents and other high-risk frail elders wear wristbands that do continuous temperature monitoring. So, Phil, what does this article tell us? Well, Carl, it's not quite a brave new world. It's one tiny step in that direction. Um, The study, which was conducted in my home state of North Carolina, was designed just to determine if residents of assisted living and independent living communities would wear continuous monitoring devices, Mm. recognizing that many had cognitive issues and might do such things as take it off and forget where it is or dispose of it by throwing it in the toilet um, or in the trash, um, all of which I've seen in my research studies on 24-hour monitoring devices. Yeah, like hearing aids, right? Uh, At least I, I assume these wearables don't cost like thousands of dollars each, like a hearing aid. Well, actually, the, <laughs> the ones we used did cost about a thousand dollars each. Oh, ouch! Yeah, we only lost one that way, but it was oh, a, you know good. Anyway, the paper itself had more favorable results, but and here's a spoiler alert: it was sponsored by a device company. Mm. Here's what they did: they conducted a 90-day feasibility trial in assisted living congregate care communities to participate. A resident had to be ambulatory and without any kind of impairment, ha-ha, to not have current active infection or adhesive allergy. They also needed to have access to a smartphone. In this rather restricted sample, the authors found that 91% of participants could put the device on without assistance and that 80% could complete the entire 90-day study wearing the device. They also found that, not surprisingly, the devices recorded more variability than checking the temperature regularly every six hours, which they did as well. Particularly striking to me was that four episodes of temperature elevation higher than 100.4 degrees were detected using this method, but only one was picked up with a two six hour temperature check. Considering that early detection of incipient infections is the key to preventing sepsis, and we're all interested in that, and considering that vital sign measurement is a very intermittent thing in long-term care, I'm intrigued by the potential of using wearable devices as an element of long-term care in the future. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, if you're missing three out of four episodes of temperature elevation, you could miss a, a significant opportunity to intervene uh, and prevent a serious infection from you know, turning into sepsis, like you say. Uh, by the way, listeners, please don't order Q6 hour temperature checks unless it's really, really necessary. Like, hey, it's midnight, wake up, time to take your temperature. Hey, it's 6 a.m. Wake up. It's time to take your temperature. Uh, That's not person-centered care, right? Uh, But in any event, similar to continuous glucose monitoring and lots of other technology, you know, that's coming around the bend and and being refined every day, I do think we're going to be seeing a brave new world of data that uh, really has a great potential to prevent medical complications and help us take better care of our patients. 
Phil, Mallory, anything to add or any last thoughts? Well, I would just endorse what you said, Carl. You know, there, the nursing home has been deprived of scientific and technologic advancement for too long. And there's a lot of things I'd love to see gradually brought in um, to make it easier for us to care for folks. I second that. Yeah. Well, all right. Well, thanks so much. Uh, that's going to wrap it up for this podcast discussion about articles from the October 22 issue of JAMDA, the Journal of Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Under the leadership of co-editors-in-chief, Drs. Phil Sloan and Cheryl Zimmerman, who are on sort of short-timer syndrome right now, uh, sadly, um, and with the support of editors like Dr. Mallory Brown, JAMDA continues to be an impactful resource on the care of older persons in post-acute and long-term care settings and beyond. So please take a look at the October 2022 issue. Dr. Sloan and Dr. Brown, Thanks for spending your time with Jamda on the go again. Thank you, Carl. Thank you. If you are a physician interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, visit paltc.org slash podcast.